Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at GodSolutionShow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Graham Persett. And we're excited that you're tuned back in. Today we wanted to talk about the ultimate hope that we have, and that's the hope in Jesus. So before we get into everything else, we're going to talk about our hope in Jesus. And specifically, Grant did the show last week. He's been on a lot of shows recently. He's going to be on a lot more in the future. I wanted to talk to Grant about what God has done in his life, let you get to know Grant and hear some of his story and and hopefully hear about the hope that we have in, in Christ. So Grant... Thanks again for being on the show with us. Thanks for having me on, Nate. All right. So we're going to get right into some questions. I'm going to interview Grant. And again, we're going to be talking to him about his journey. So first and foremost, Grant, how did you become a Christian? So growing up in Northern California, I was a teenager, never been to church, never heard of Jesus. If you can believe that, never been witnessed to or anything. I'm sitting on my bed at about 17 and a half years old. And I'm reading a book by Edgar Cayce. It's a good thing if you haven't heard. He's a psychic. He talked about reincarnation, karma, all kinds of stuff. And I'm reading God the Father, God the Son, and all of a sudden it hits me that Jesus is alive. Now, no bright light went off. There was no kind of like Mormon experience, nothing like that. But I knew for a fact that Jesus was alive. And what's amazing is I didn't realize later on that I didn't look to any of the books I had. I was completely into the New Age. I was into Eastern mysticism. I'd been through atheism. I'd been an atheist for a while. But reading this book that wasn't Christian at all, having no one witness to me, and all of a sudden I realized Jesus is alive. And so my first prayer was, out loud, I just said, Jesus, if you're alive, then, then tell me. I mean, I was literally kind of writing papers on what is the truth. Now, I had a total non-Christian life at this point. I'm drinking, obviously not old enough to drink, partying, doing the California lifestyle and all that kind of stuff. And um, my life started to very slowly change, although I didn't even know to call myself a Christian for a while, and I didn't even know to go to church at all. So a different type of experience. In fact, my wife was teasing me and saying I'm really unique because at church they had people raise their hand. Who became a Christian with someone else? And they raised their hand. Who became a Christian by reading the Bible? They raised their hand. And he didn't give me my category. My wife said, yeah, that, that's not a surprise. <laughs> so anyway, you almost became a Jehovah's Witness and even a Mormon before actually becoming a Christian. Tell me a little bit about that. So the first thing that happened, I'm 17 and a half, I've, sa- I've said, Jesus, if you're alive, then tell me. I'm still living a sinful life, but I'm starting to feel guilty about it. Now, at this point, I have never opened a Bible. It was a while later that I kind of dusted off this, this King James Version and found John 14, and where there's many rooms in heaven, and I'll, I'll take you there, and all that kind of stuff that was just interesting to read at first. And Jehovah Witnesses knocked on the door. Now, I'm living with my parents. I'm 17 years old. And on Saturday afternoon, I would have three to five Jehovah Witnesses sitting around talking to me. They had no idea what to do with me. 
I mean, I believed in reincarnation at this point, karma. I am all over the map. So they, they really had no, no uh, way to kind of put a fix on me. So I talked to them off and on for about a year, and I was praying, but there was just something wrong. I wish I could say that I, I had a handle on what the Watchtower and Bible Tract Society taught, and I investigated deeply. I tried, but I wished I had had apologetics. And so later on, I'm going to appreciate apologetics because I didn't know what to tell them. So I'm just talking to them on and off for about a year, and then... I start going to church. I'm at 20 years old now. Started at Salvation Army is the first church I went to. And before I started going there, developed a relationship with a girl who was a Mormon. She lived in a whole other state. She lived in Indiana. And I, we were talking about marriage. They had a job at FedEx for me. They were giving me kind of like glorified stories of, of leaving family and leaving everyone and becoming a Mormon. And I came home. And I told my parents, I'm going to become a Mormon. And I was going to do it. Um, and to leave that decision to not become a Mormon because I was emotionally attached to her and emotionally attached to the decision because I thought, you know, it was kind of a testimony. Uh, that was probably one of the toughest decisions I ever made. But at that point now, I've been reading my Bible. I've been listening to a little bit. I wouldn't call myself a grounded Christian at all, but I was just really seeking the truth, really praying, and I could tell there was something wrong. And so this would kind of set my love for apologetics up because young people need apologetics. They're getting visited by Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons all the time. Through the years, I've talked to lots of Mormons, lots of Jehovah Witnesses. I'm, I'm not saying I'm a scholar at it. I'm not the best in the world at it, but I'm very comfortable with my faith now and the grounding of Christianity, and I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. But at this point, it, it was really kind of touch and go that I would have joined the Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons. It was a close call. You know, that's kind of like my story a little bit. I grew up a missionary kid, and at about the age of 10 in Antigua, Guatemala, some Jehovah's Witness missionaries whispered in my ear behind my parents' back, Jesus is not God. And that catapulted me into a couple decades of personal doubt about the deity of Christ. And if you're listening and you're wondering, I know a lot of Christians are absolutely clueless on this issue. Just working in ministry all the time, I talk to people that haven't figured out the, the Trinity and how that works out yet. Jesus really is God. And the Bible is very clear about that in both explicit and implicit ways. I mean, it clearly states it in passages like John 1, 1 and then it also kind of refers to it in many other areas as well. You know, I've talked about that. You could go to GodSolutionShow.com and check out more on the deity of Christ. But for today, we wanted to go on with Grant's testimony. You say you became a Christian at 17 and a half, but didn't go to church until about 20. How did that happen? So after I prayed, Jesus, if you're alive, then tell me, I talked to Jehovah Witnesses, I talked to Mormons, I'm talking to a lot of people and just reading and asking questions, and I have the time frame, is a little hazy in my mind, but I believe at that time, we're talking almost like 1989 now, so we're starting to date my, my age here, um, and in 89, there was the California earthquake, 7.1, and we had just started going to Salvation Army because we'd been listening to the radio, and I'm trying to remember if Walter Martin was on air. I listened to a lot of tapes, tape cassettes back him. There's another old thing. If anyone doesn't know what a tape cassette is, you can Google it. And so I was listening to Walter Martin, I think somewhat on the radio before he passed away, but definitely his material. And 
on the radio, somebody called in to the apologetic show that Hank Hanegraaff has now, the Bible Answer Man, and they asked a question. They said, uh, a woman has three or four children. She can't pay her electric bill. She has no food. What does she do? And one person on the show started to kind of give a spiritual answer, and then he said, well, you know, before I give the spiritual answer, go to the Salvation Army. They're actually a Christian church, a Protestant denomination. They have social services. They have food. A lot of times they will help you pay your bill free of charge. Now, what's funny about that is my father was listening to the radio at the same time, listening to the same show, and when we both heard that, it clicked man, that's where Jesus would be. We need to go to church. So my parents visited Salvation Army actually in Sunnyvale, California. There was a Sunnyvale Salvation Army Corps. They went the first Sunday. I went the next Sunday. And church was not easy for me to go to. I mean, as a 20-year-old, it was not an easy thing for me to do to get up on Sunday morning, especially not being a morning person. Um, the only thing I would get up for on Sunday is either IHOP or fishing, something like that. And so I started going, but when the 89 earthquake hit, we showed up on Sunday, and in the front door, there was so much food, so much stuff donated, we couldn't even get in the front door. So we spent like 12 hours. It was amazing. 12 hours that day, loading trucks, taking tents to people who had lost their homes. It was just one of the most amazing days we've ever had. I remember me and my father talking at the end of the day. And even though we didn't really see each other that day, we kind of went our separate ways. Um, we said, you know what? This is where Jesus would be. And that's really what hooked me into church because I wanted to do something that was going to make a difference. And um, I think that's where Christianity really is. We need the academic apologetic side, but we also need the activities, the service, and, and the activism, if you want to put it that way. Absolutely. I think it's critical that Christians uh, voice our concerns. You know, some people think we don't want to shove our beliefs down everybody else's throats. Right. I always think that's all that's happening in our society. <laughs> our whole society yep. is shoving yep. beliefs down people's throats. Now, we shouldn't do it the same way. We should do it lovingly, but maybe not shoving things down people's throats, but being open and honest and outspoken about the truth and the hope that can change lives. There's surely not enough of that today. How did you adjust to church as a 20-year-old? So at first, it was kind of awkward, and there was no other 20-year-olds. And what happened was it was just sheer kind of determination that I realized this is the right thing to do. I need to go. But then a guy came there named, named Don Shepard. Don Shepard had lost his wife and first son. He became an alcoholic. He had a temper problem, so he lost them. He was washing his socks in the Truckee River in California, and he checked himself into a Salvation Army. And he only checked himself in to, you know, have some shelter, have some food for a little while, but it struck him that, you know what, this might be my last chance to get cleaned up. And so at the Salvation Army, they have alcohol and drug rehabilitation centers. You check yourself in at this point for like six months. You go to church on Sunday. They give you the message. They give you work to do. If you've ever gone to the thrift store or anything like that, those are run by the ARCs, alcohol rehab centers. So he gets uh, basically clean and sober. He meets uh, a lady named Martha, awesome lady. She had an, some, some drug issues at the time, got sober, got clean and sober, and they get married. And they are this incredible, dynamic couple. Today, he's a pastor with eight kids. They're, uh, I think, in Northern California still. 
Um, so he gets the job as the youth director. And the pastors asked him to go there. Now, the youth pastors don't make anything. I mean, it was, we're talking like $18,000. You get a free apartment or something or a supported apartment. And the guy was a voracious reader. He would get up at 3 in the morning and study. His knowledge just was, was incredible. Anyway, he hired me as a youth worker. He says, hey, Grant, you, wanna, you want a job? And, you know, I'm kind of going to college part-time and not really knowing what I want to do. And he knew that I could probably leave church at any time and it would be boring. So he really hired me to disciple me. And I have to say that all the way through my life, there were people that, that looked out for me. I wish I could say I was a self-made man, but that just wouldn't be true. There were people that invested and loved me and spent time with me. So Don was one person. And the other thing I prayed for is I just prayed for young guys that were sincere Christians that weren't too weird. I know that sounds weird, but there's, there's guys that were in church that didn't want to be there, that were just dragged there by their parents. They weren't sincere. And then there were the guys I was hanging out with, and I didn't want to drink and fight and do the, all the old stuff. And so I was in this weird stage with knowing my age. And so part of that was I hung out with the teenagers. So I'd go get the van and pick them up, drive out to the beach, We'd then come back, go to Taco Bell, get kicked out of Taco Bell, go to the Dollar Theater, get kicked out of the Dollar Theater. And uh, I say that because the, these kids came from broken families. I mean, a lot of their kid, their parents were, were strung out. They didn't care if I took them for the day or the weekend or anything. So, you know, I spent my time investing in kids. But you know what? i got to be honest. It was just as much for me. It kept me out of trouble. And, um, and it was pretty good. And then the, the last thing I'd say about that is pray for friends at church. And that's what happens. I, I got two friends, Tim and Glenn, turned out to be lifetime friends. We've had times we contact more, times we contact less. They're both in different states now. But um, they'll probably never realize the impact they had on me to see guys that were bold and sincere, but just regular guys trying to serve Christ. And so that it took a while to find them or for God to give them. But if you're out there and, and you don't have that kind of fellowship, whether you're married with kids or retired, single, whatever stage you're in, I would ask God and pray and say, hey, Lord, I'd really like some friends that would be able to empathize with me and encourage also. Amazing. And that's exactly why the body of Christ is there, right? A lot of times people say, I can connect with God better in the mountains than I can in a church building. And I say, me too. But I don't connect with other believers that are going to encourage me in my faith so often in the mountains. You know, when we go to church, when we, when we become members of a local body of believers, we can get that fellowship and that encouragement. That's incredible. All right, so as we talk about all this, I think it's important. You know, we talk a lot about apologetics on this show. And in a minute, I want to talk to you about some apologetical things and how you as a Christian can have confidence in your faith. But for anybody that's just tuning in, I want to let you know that you're listening to The God Solution Show. And you can find out more about the show at godsolutionshow.com. Today we are interviewing Grant Brissett, who is a friend here in Albuquerque, who is an apologist, who is uh, joining us on the show more and more frequently. And I thought you're hearing him a lot. It'd be good for you to actually hear about him. So today we're talking a little bit about his testimony and how he came to faith in Christ. We've talked a little bit about that so far, but now we kind of want to go into some other issues like the evidence for faith. So Grant, as we think about the evidence for faith, you know, the question that a lot of people are going to throw at you right away is, well, what about evolution? Doesn't that disprove your faith? And uh, what would you say to something like that? So it depends what you mean by the word evolution. 
Evolution, just on the face, has at least three different definitions. If you mean change over time, I have no problem with that. My diet has evolved. My exercise has evolved. Things evolve. Nobody debates that. If you're talking about natural selection or microevolution, you're talking about change within species. So when I used to go out to D.C. and go to the um, museums, you see the example of the horses that had longer legs that could outrun their prey. The ones with shorter legs got eaten. Therefore, over time, horses got longer legs. That's a change within species. Nobody has a problem with that. If they have a problem with that, uh, I don't really have anything good to say about that. So that's called microevolution and that or natural selection. The problem in the debate comes in macroevolution. Macroevolution means change from one species to another. And let me be very, very clear about this. There is no evidence for macroevolution. When someone says they believe in evolution, ask them what evidence they're talking about. And if they talk about the horses, if they talk about the, the moths that you know, died off because it was a fire. The white ones got eaten and the black ones survived. So the moths became uh, more black over time. The black ones survived. That's a change within species. And so ask them, what is the evidence for one species changing into another? That's a huge problem. Now for me, I grew up with evolution. I came home in the third grade, told my mom, uh, we evolved from monkeys, which isn't the technical thing. The technical uh, belief is that we had a common ancestor. But I said, hey, we evolved from, from monkeys. And my mother said, uh, no, we didn't. I said, yeah, we did. No, we didn't. Finally, she turned to me and said, maybe you evolved from a monkey, but I didn't. <laughs> so so I, I breathed this growing up, and it was really Philip Johnson that got me thinking about where did the information come from? How do you put this all together? And so when someone asks me about evolution, the first thing I do is say, what do you mean by evolution? And keeping those three things in mind, I kind of educate them on those three things. And most people haven't heard it that way, and they're, they're kind of stumped, you know, in, in some sense. So a lot of times we use the uh, TAILS acronym for Evidence Against Evolution. If you go to godsolutionshow.com, there will be a tab there that says uh, The Best Facts. Click that tab and look at the TALL TAILS acronym. The TAILS acronym is a great way of uh, refuting evolution. I'm not going to go into it, though. You're just going to have to go to godsolutionshow.com and then click the uh, Best Facts tab, or just go to thebestfacts.com. Either one would work, and there's a great argument against evolution there. You know, we've done a lot of shows like uh, on that topic before, too, so you could get that at our past shows tab. Anyway, right now I want to ask Grant, you know, that's some negative evidence for why we wouldn't trust evolution, but that doesn't mean we're right. So as Christians, we can't just say the other guys don't have evidence. Coincidentally, that's what the atheists always do, right? Absolutely. I'm not a Christian because you guys don't have the evidence. Well, we do have the evidence, but they never give us any evidence for atheism. So I want to say, yep, you know, naturalism is wrong, but why Christianity? What led you to faith in Christ, or why do you think we can be confident that our faith isn't just a myth? So Christianity boils down to a three-word question, and here's the question. Is he risen? Everything, all of Christianity boils down to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse, go to verse 14 and 19, if Christ is not risen, your faith is in vain, our preaching is useless. It's all about the resurrection, and I admit this freely to people. And I tell them, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there is no reason for me or anyone to go to church. 
Some people might say that it makes kids better, makes you better. To me, that's ridiculous. If it's not true, I'm not giving my money. I'm not giving my time. I'm sleeping in, going to IHOP and ordering extra syrup. I mean, that's it. So the question, is he risen? I answer a resounding yes. And I love Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona. They have the argument for the minimal facts um, approach, which they use for the resurrection. And I think it's something that every Christian should learn. And it's one of my favorites. So it kind of goes like this. Your bottom line, one sentence word you can ask people is, hey, if Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead, you have an interesting adventure in front of you. If he didn't, game over. But I'll start out before I start sharing the argument with Frank Turk's favorite question, and he asks people this. He says, if Christianity were true, if you found out Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And if they say, well, no, well, then there's no real reason to keep talking, you know. But if they say yes, now you have an open-minded person you can talk to. So the argument for the resurrection kind of goes like this. There's certain historical facts that all New Testament historians and scholars believe. Almost all, let me say virtually all, high 90 percentiles. The way Habermas says it is, you're going to search far and wide for anyone to disagree with some of these facts. And let me just give you a couple. The fact that Jesus lived, the fact that he died, that he was crucified by the Romans, the fact that the disciples after his death believed they encountered him and their lives changed. Where did they get this from? Also, you have to account for Paul, who persecuted the church, killed Christians. He becomes a Christian and dies for his faith. And then you have the skeptic James, the brother of Jesus, who is a skeptic during the life of Jesus, turns around and becomes a Christian and at least suffers or is willing to suffer for his faith. And so you have these historical facts. And let me, let me just drive this fact home. And that is that they are historical facts. You can go to, I'm going to call him an anti-Christian apologist, Bart Ehrman. You can walk into Barnes & Noble right now, and he's got a book, Did Jesus Exist? And he said, yes. I mean, he thinks it's ridiculous that anyone who believes he didn't exist and was crucified under Pontius Pilate would be ridiculous. So he admits these facts. So the, the interesting part here becomes is, what do you do with those facts? Well, the facts I just told you about Jesus living, him being crucified and dying, the disciples believing they encountered him after the death, the conversion of Paul, the conversion of James, those are historical facts. Another fact that is a little more disputed and still a historical fact that 75% of scholars agreeing on is the fact that the tomb was found empty. Okay, now that we've done that groundwork, how do you explain what happened? And so what happens is you can hear people and different scholars go over beliefs of explaining those historical facts, and they're called alternate theories. So one, the only one really found in the Bible is, hey, the disciples stole the body. That's why the tomb was empty. The disciples stole the body. Okay, well, let's think about that for a second. Let's put that in light of the other facts. Well, one of the other facts is the disciples believed they encountered Jesus and their lives changed. They were willing to suffer. So if they're the ones that stole the body, why would they want to die for a lie? I mean, in first century Palestine, you became an enemy of the Jews and an enemy of Rome if you worshipped a dead Jewish carpenter, right? So there's no, there's no reason, there's no motivation for him to lie and to do that. 
So another one that's really, I think, the, the most common is actually hallucination theory. And hallucination theory is interesting because there's no mass hallucination accounts that we know of, right? So it'd be like me saying, hey, I had a great uh, dream last night. How'd you like it? Or tonight I'm going to go dream about a vacation of Hawaii. Why don't you join me? It doesn't happen. You're talking about 12 appearances of Jesus after his resurrection, and you're going to have to explain those with hallucination theory. Then you've got to say Paul on the road to Damascus hallucinated, and then hallucination theory does not account for the empty tomb. You have massive problems. Another interesting point about hallucination theory is people do hallucinate. So who hallucinates? Usually elderly people who've been married for, say, 50 years. One, unfortunately, passes away, and somebody else hears the voice, maybe of their wife, calling from another room. It sounded like they called my name. Now, what's important about that? Hallucinations are single scope in nature. You either think you see somebody real briefly or you think you hear something. But the accounts of Jesus were they listened, they talked to him, they were invited to touch even the wounds in his hands, they ate with him, they heard him, and they interacted. That has no marks of hallucination whatsoever. It doesn't make sense when you look at the evidence. So I'm trying to do like a basic foundation of the argument for the resurrection kind of briefly, but I think it's just a masterful argument. I've used it at work and said, hey, can I give you the three-minute version? And I've done even a shorter version of this, believe it or not. But the bottom line is, if Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead, then anyone has an adventure to go look into. And that's the thing. You know, I have a friend recently that said, I just can't believe in Christianity because of the flood. I think the evidence for a worldwide flood is lacking. And I said, you know, we could talk about that later and all the details and different answers and things like that. But ultimately, if Jesus rose from the dead, that's all I need to be a Christ follower. Maybe I'm misreading certain things in the Old Testament. Maybe I'm interpreting them wrong. Maybe they were meant to be read differently than I read them today. I'm not saying that they were. I'm just saying all of that pales in comparison to the reality that Jesus beat death And he promised to do it for all who put their trust in him. So that's the game changer of all game changers. And so, yeah, think of the women who found the the tomb empty and then encountered Jesus. And after they encountered him, someone came up to him and said, you know, the evidence for the crossing of the Red Sea really just doesn't seem that tight. I mean, what would they say? They'd probably say, you know what? I don't know. All I know is Jesus was dead and now he's alive. That's (laughs) all I'm following him. (laughs) All right. So... We're about to wrap up here, and I just wanted to highlight something that, that Airman notes. You know, a lot of people might hear that, that brief description of the evidence, and there's so much more. And they might say, oh, it's weak. It's not weak. It's extremely strong. In fact, Ehrman gives all these alternate theories, and he goes, do any of my theories make sense? Are any of them probable? And he goes, of course not. But he goes, they're more probable than a resurrection because resurrections don't happen. But what we got to get here is... He doesn't have a plausible refutation of the resurrection. The only thing he brings to the table is begging the question, a logical fallacy. When the number one expert alive in the world today resorts to a logical fallacy to defeat the resurrection, you know you're on solid ground when you trust the resurrection. Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) And I think the only reason that people reject 
the resurrection is they a priori reject miracles. And so the whole point of going through the historical facts and looking at alternate theories is to say the most reasonable explanation of those facts is a resurrection. And the only reason you're not going to believe the resurrection is you're going to say, I can't believe in miracles. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for tuning in and hearing a little bit more about Grant. Grant, thank you for telling us about yourself. Oh, thank you very much for letting me talk about myself. <laughs> hey, if you just heard this and you've never taken that step to put your faith in Jesus, like Grant did when he was 17 and a half, I encourage you to do that right now, to say, Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Jesus, thank you for rising again to give me new life. I ask you to come into my life as Savior and Lord. Please make me the kind of person you want me to be. The Bible says that if you've put your faith and your trust in Christ alone, you'll be adopted into his family, saved, his child, with a life of meaning on this planet to look forward to and an eternity with him in heaven to look forward to as well. I encourage you to go to GodSolutionShow.com to get all of our past shows, to leave us uh, questions that you might have, and even to donate to keep the show on the air. And I also want to close with the same statement that I share every week, and that's that an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. I'm convinced that's true, and I encourage you to seek him passionately if you know him, sharing the evidence with those you love. And if you don't know him, continue to seek him because you will find him. He promises you that. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at GodSolutionShow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.